what's up guys this episode is going to be really awesome this episode we're going to talk about the women of science fiction that is to say the uh creators the writers that have helped push science fiction the genre forward over its history we talk about ursula k le guin we talk about mary shelley we talk about octavia butler we talk about margaret atwood and a number of other uh, authors and after this episode we actually have uh interview or a, I guess a conversation with a friend of Infinite Worlds and science fiction writer and general rock star Natalia Yanchak um, to help give us a woman's perspective on this whole discussion. So, you know, stick around. Coming right up. I am Nick the Tooth and you can find me on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and I'm with Winston Ward and you can find him at InfiniteWorldsMagazine.com and also Infinite Worlds Magazine on Instagram. And also look for Infinite Horrors Magazine. So, dude, what's been going on with you, man? Still mostly staying inside because I haven't quite gotten all the way vaccinated yet. Been working on the book of about like 65,000 words into my second book now. That's a novel. 60,000 yeah. is a novel, dude. Congratulations. I'm going to 90,000 is my goal. 85 to 90 is my goal, my projected goal. But I'm not sure how long it'll end up being after I, you know do all of my edits and everything. Um, I, I have an early reader, uh, Natalia Janchuk. She's a, a Canadian woman who's in a band called the Deers out of Canada, and she's a sci-fi writer. I've published her stories before. She volunteered to early read it. So I'm really getting a lot of great feedback and like <clears throat> do some really solid work on it lately. I've been putting together issue eight of the magazine, almost done with that. I hired an accounting firm to take care of Infinite World's money and bookkeeping and all that because I'm horrible at that kind of thing. <laughs> I bought some fishing gear. I've been wanting to go fishing, but every time it's about to be time for a fishing trip, it snows or rains or something like that. So I haven't had a chance to use it yet, but I'm planning to do that hopefully this weekend, but if not, the next weekend. Oh, that's awesome, man. That's aw- What kind of fishing are you going to do? Well, I grew up fishing for catfish and bass in North Texas. Mm-hmm. I tell this story a lot, but when I was a little kid in my elementary school, I won a casting contest, like rod and reel casting contest, like where you'd cast just a weight with no hook or bait or anything on there into like a five gallon bucket on the other side of like a gym. Damn, that's crazy. Yeah, that's what growing up in North Texas is like in the early <laughs> 90s. It was like Tony Orlando's fishing challenge or something like that. Some complete. Oh my God. It was like a complete corporate (laughs) fucking money grab in our elementary school gym. But I was like a little kid. So I was like, hell yeah, dude, I'll go cast a fishing pole. I do that shit all day anyway. (laughs) The character in my novel is like a big time outdoor survivalist type hunter, fisher person. And as I'm writing her character, I'm really jealous of a lot of her qualities that I don't keep up with in myself. So I'm trying to get back to nature. I I'd spent all last year backpacking and hiking and everything. And this year I want to incorporate some more like fishing, cleaning the fish. I do want to eventually learn to hunt. I've never hunted before, but I really do want to learn to hunt because I just feel like there are some skills human beings would be wise to stay on top of because we never know what the future holds and it might potentially be a regression in technology, in which case those skills could be life-saving. So, you know. That sounds like the basis for a sci-fi novel. Right. You know, and that is kind of, <laughs> that is that is sort of a, a big theme in the book I'm writing. Oh, that's so cool, man. That's so cool. Yeah, but mostly I've been boring, been writing, watching TV, reading, reading um, a book by an author we're going to talk about on this episode. So why don't we... Uh, what have you been watching? Anything good? Oh, man. Quite a few things, actually. I've been, okay, so I've been watching the... Twin Peaks The Return, which is super weird, mm-hmm. even weirder than the original Twin Peaks show. I'd, I've got a real love-hate relationship with that. I just started watching 
HBO's Westworld, which, you know, I know came out like seven years ago or something like that. But Dude, it's so good. It's right? so good. It's super, super, super good. I'm late to this party big time, guys, but I'm on the Westworld bandwagon now, however many years too late. Great cast, great visual effects, great score. The score is so good. Like the music to that show is so good. I've been in that one. There's one other thing that we were watching, but now I can't remember what it was. I just watched an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation during my lunch break today uh, before we did this podcast. It's (laughs) funny you say that because I've been watching it too. I've been going back and watching The Next Generation. I love it. I watched one and I was like, I forgot this episode. Yeah, dude, that that always happens for me because, you know, there are like eight seasons of TNG, so many episodes. So like, I'll I'll turn it on and be like, oh yeah, this episode. I haven't seen this one since I was like 11. So it's been pretty fun. So good. I'm, I'm, we're in the middle of this book, man. I might've talked about it last time, uh, by Kazuo Ishiguri, who wrote, um, Never Let Me Go by, which was directed by Alex Garland, the adaptation and this one. Yeah, this is Clara and the Sun and it's good. I really recommend that for anybody out there. It's sci-fi. It's really freaking good. Okay. Really, really digging it. Yeah. I'm not going to give too much away, but it's, uh, Never Let Me Go is, is, is amazing. And Clara and the Sun, this guy is... He's an amazing writer. All right. Okay. So we got some good book recommendations to go. I'll, I'll get into my, the book I'm reading right now towards the later part of this episode. So we can hold off on that until now. So let's get into it, man. Let's get into it. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. This is Women in Sci-Fi. You know, going through and really reading about uh, and learning about some of these authors that I've, I've read their books and I've loved so much like Margaret Atwood and Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, I, I, what's fascinating for me is that as I, as I really delved into both of their stories, because they're such preeminent sci-fi, uh, women writers that, uh, that as I started reading about both of them, the parallels, between their lives were so striking and what uh what was so wild that i didn't really consider was that they were really influenced by the times in the sense that they came up during the 60s during the sexual revolution and it was this really this feminist revolution Mm -hmm. that was brought Mm -hmm. on by of all things something so practical but in 1960, birth control pill was invented. The pill. And by 1962, millions of women were on birth control. And you might think, well, yeah, you know, it's, I tell you what, it's kind of like uh, a Star Trek episode where you go to another world and you're kind of like in an alternate history world and you're like, oh my gosh, look how different things are, you know, if, if women didn't have birth control. And one of the most startling statistics that I've ever heard when I was in school was that the number one cause of anyone slipping below the poverty line is having a kid, especially a a single woman that gets pregnant and has a child, boom, right below the poverty line. Okay, so this is a really, really big point you're making here. And I, I think we should dwell on it for a second. Okay, so men and women intellectually equal. I don't think anybody's going to argue that, at least anybody that listens to this show. In the majority of ways, totally equals to men. But one thing that set women and men apart is obviously pregnancy. That's not some special nugget of wisdom I'm dropping here, but obviously everybody knows that. But 
what a lot of men don't consider is that pregnancy is a gigantic burden on women. I mean, it can also obviously be viewed as a blessing. You have a child, and I'm sure your your wife is very happy to have had a child, and lots and lots of women out there are happy mothers. And this isn't meant to take anything away from them in any way. Obviously, being a mother is a an excellent life choice. Totally fine. Absolutely not saying anything against that. But it is, like you said, a gigantic burden, a gigantic responsibility. And the difference between men and women is, is that a man can walk away and do, often do that, and leave women to bear the brunt of that tremendous life-changing responsibility on their own. Or even if they don't walk away, they leave the parenting part of being a parent to the woman in the relationship. And uh, that was really what the nuclear family that the American dream was based on depends on. It depends on that. It depends on a woman spending her time raising children and keeping a house for those children and not pursuing a career of her own while a man pursues his career and financial independence until which time he decides or not to leave that situation. One of the greatest cliches is a man just starting yeah. over with a new family. And it's heavy, man. I mean, having raised a child, man, it's, dude, there's nothing harder in the world that you will go through. And f to think about, you know, being a single mom, that's why I'm so aggro about, you know, about politics in the sense that I'm always just thinking about what about single moms? What about, and, and, and talking about one thing, you know, you look at maternity leave. I mean, we are the only industrialized country in the world that offers zero paid maternity leave. Zero days. Zero days. The UK, 270 days. Almost a whole, like, like two-thirds of a year. Do we really care about kids? We don't give a shit about kids. We're moms. Obviously. Okay, so all of this stems from this archaic, I guess what I would say is sort of a religious Really, I think the religion part of it is kind of a disguise for corporate interests, truthfully. I'll get into that in just a second. But this system that's been put in place and is still being, to this day, still being pushed on the American people, the idea that there should be a nuclear family, because in my opinion, this keeps men in the workforce, it keeps women distracted with child rearing, and it keeps a lot of children continuously being produced for the workforce. So in the future, there'll be plenty more men to work the factories or deliver the mail or do whatever other tasks are necessary and plenty of women to help raise more children for the next generation. And I personally believe that this system, although a lot of people relate it to religion, and I'm sure there's some root in that as well. But I think a lot of reason is because it was such a prominent piece of the, I guess I'd say the conservative American landscape is because it is good for the corporation. It's good for the bottom dollar. Yeah, you know, in the in the long run, and when corporations took over America, okay, so before that, there was an impetus to have children because people were farmers. Yeah, and in which case, both the men and the women would go out to the farm and bring their kids out there and have them, you know, be basically farmhands. And when we had a very highly agrarian society, that system made a lot more sense. But as we don't live in an agrarian society anymore, or hardly. It makes a lot less sense now. And again, like I say, I think it's just a control technique. But when the uh, pill came along, and you said it was 1962? 1960 invented by 1962, millions of women. Okay, okay. So invented by, in 1960, it was already being uh, common practice by 1962. When that came along, it really changed the perspective of 
women in America because obviously they did not have to get pregnant if they didn't want to. They could have sex and do what their hormones dictated that they do, and our hormones dictate that we do as well as men, uh, without it costing them the rest of their lives or shackling them to this nuclear family situation. Um, and really, like you say, that really changed everything. And it really made it uh, a conversation that women are, you know, independent beings. They have their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own dreams, their own, you know, goals that don't necessarily match up with the first man that impregnates them. Uh, and that was a big dynamic change. And there was obviously a lot of pushback in it. The sixties had the whole, uh, sexual revolution, uh, a cultural revolution throughout, you know what I mean? A kind of a rejection of the nuclear family ideals in a lot of other senses. Yeah. It's, it's so Uh, wild how there is. And again, it really, you know, we use so often sci-fi as a culture to like shine a light and contrast with the way things, you know, and I'll get into that in some of these books is that, you know, that's the purpose of sci-fi, right? We look at the way things were and compare them to the way they are or the way that we think they should be. And that whole sixties, like for me, the, the idea of, you know, what life must've been like before all these cultural changes. We also had big cultural changes in the sense that, uh, the highways, just think about that infrastructure had changed. Mm -hmm. So we built these highways now people and people had cars, very cheap, readily available cars. And so they started leaving these small towns and started traveling. I mean, that's what Jack Kerouac's on the road was, right? It was that book of, Hey, go ahead and leave, you know, go leave it all behind. Encountering new ideas. And that, so you Uh, had the pill that changed everything. You had uh, the, the, the freedom of infrastructure that made it very easy to just pick up and move where that never was the case before. You know, and so society went through this rapid freaking revolution. We had at the same time, we had civil rights and then we had feminist, you know, feminism again with the sexual revolution, which is in that feminism, you know, movement really shone a light on. And that's what these authors did. The two Ursula K. Le Guin and Margaret Atwood that I'm going to talk about. I mean, that was their whole their their whole M.O. was to say, listen, okay, so- cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. This it, It's oppression. And it, it really is nothing short of oppression uh, by one group that believes that they should have c- control of the steering wheel while another group sits in the back seat. Um, and, and let's be honest, it was white men. And, you know, obviously we're too – okay, I just want to – before we continue any further, I just want to say up front that I, it does bother me a bit recording an episode like this because I do – have a nagging feeling like I'm a white man speaking on behalf of women and also women of color. We'll get that in the episode too. And I just want to say, I don't think in any way that I'm speaking on behalf of them and I'm definitely not intending to do that at all. I know Nick isn't either. Uh, we're just um, looking at this topic from the perspective of two white men. You know what I mean? And I, I just want you to know that we, uh, you know, if we say anything um, ignorant, it's because we, we are ignorant, you know, uh, we obviously can't live these people's lives and be put in these situations. Or, or, or even to go back and say, what was it like to live in a society yeah, exactly. before you had roads, before exactly, you had, exactly. 
before you had the birth control pill, before you had, you know what I mean? Even a male, you know, at that time, if you got someone pregnant, you're just like, well, that's it. (laughs) My life, I got to stand up and do what's right. And, you know. Or you could bounce, you know what I mean? And lots of dudes did too. And they, I mean, that still happens today too. But things were a little bit more structured, you know, back in the day on that front, I, I suppose. But anyway, my point is just because we're talking about this issue doesn't mean that we think we're experts on this. We just like want to shed a light on it to our fans. And this is especially going out to all of you guys that are listening. I know there are some of you that think that talking about feminism and talking about the sexual revolution and that kind of thing are dividers, like that that's causing the division. Like people who say that when you talk about race, you're creating division. And I just want you to know that that's, that's not right, y'all. Like you need to understand empathy towards other groups is important. And one of the ways you gain empathy towards other groups is talking about them and reading about them and learning about them and absolutely listening to them when they talk and, you know, not assuming that your point of view and your perspective is somehow greater or more knowledgeable because it's almost never, it almost, and this is true of me as well. This is true of every person. Your perspective is only your perspective. Yeah. And you got to keep that in mind. Your perspective and your understanding of a situation is not universal. It's not for any person that lives in the world. Yeah. And, and, and another thing is that we're really, for me, I'm really coming at it from a fan perspective. You know, these are my favorite, oh, totally. these are my favorite sci-fi writers. So for me, I'm like, yeah, exactly. It's, I've got a number of favorite sci- science fiction writers that are women. And, you know, to me, writing and uh, the use of the written word and the intellect involved with doing that, there's no distinction between men and women. In my opinion, the ability to write is gifted equally to men and women throughout the world. Yeah. But, the system that publishes the written word is not, not even now. And it never has been throughout history. And it's getting better. It's really close to being equal now. And perhaps we're right on the verge of that. But the authors that we're going to discuss today had to fight against a sexist system, a system that did not want women to have an equal voice in the industry. Yeah, their entire careers. No two ways about it. I mean, okay, so well, be- before we uh, go on with Ursula and Margaret Atwood, I want to rewind and talk about who I consider and a lot of people consider to be the very first science fiction novelist of all time, and that's Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley, obviously, is the author of Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus, which was written or was released in 1818, so more than 200 years ago now, the first science fiction book was written by Mary Shelley. And Mary Shelley wrote this book when she was only 19 or 20 years old. Very, very, very young. And she was married to an already famous poet, Percy Shelley. And even though Mary Shelley's father was a political philosopher for a living, and her mother was a famous activist, people still refused to believe that Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley, that she had the intellectual capability to write Frankenstein. It is, after all, a masterpiece. And there was a blanket assumption that Percy Shelley, her husband, had written the book and put her name on it as like some sort of gift, like he was gifting her with this to help her literary career. And it took quite a bit of maneuvering to finally get, in fact, the first printing of Frankenstein had Percy Shelley's name written on it as the author. Why? Because the publishers refused to believe that Mary Shelley wrote it. No way. 
or conversely, they believe that even if she had written it, it would do a lot better if people believed that Percy Shelley wrote it because the idea was that nobody could take the fiction works of a woman that seriously. And this is really before a lot of the famous female novelists. This is before the Brontes. This is before Emily Dickinson. So she precedes that group. And she really sets the stage for them, too, not just as science fiction writers, but as just general novelists and general writers. That's not to say that there weren't female writers anywhere in history. But as far as big pop culture phenomenons, she really was a uh, trailblazer in that regard. Okay, so I have a question. All right. So Mary Shelley, obviously, I love dark, macabre morbid women female characters i think they're and women in Uh general i think it's awesome she must have been so freaking macabre because if you really think about it frankenstein is so freaking morbid and macabre it's crazy right yeah i mean what what's her story what motivated her well okay so i believe she got the idea for writing the book when she saw a science exhibit, which, you know, the, the word science is used very loosely at this point in history. 1818 was not exactly, or it was probably around 1815 when this happened, when she was a 15 or 16 year old. And basically they were uh, animating frog legs by hitting them with electric impulses and, uh, you know, having them twitch and move. I think it was frog legs. I could be getting that part of this story wrong. I know that they were uh, animating some sort of dead animal part, but I, for some reason, think it's probably... That, that totally freaking makes sense. That is so freaking cool, man. One thing that is really important about the Mary Shelley story is that Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, is one of the first famous 19th century feminists and a big-time early feminist philosopher. So Mary Shelley was raised by a staunch women's rights advocate in the 19th century, the early 19th century, and the late 18th century. Actually, let me rephrase that. She wasn't raised by her, but she was born to her. She died when she was really young. She died 11 days after giving birth to Mary. Oh, my gosh. But she didn't know her, but she did know her through her works. And she was published. She was, like, famous all around England. And her father kept the memory of her alive by teaching her, uh, Mary Shelley's father, kept the memory of his wife, Mary Wollstonecraft, alive by instilling in Mary those philosophies, you know, sort of unashamedly doing so, which was definitely kind of a taboo thing to do in the early 1800s, for sure, even though, you know, England was becoming sort of a light of the world at that point. So Mary entered the scene with all these philosophies, and she ended up marrying Percy Shelley, who was known to be kind of a womanizing type individual, and created a big scandal, and even advanced that scandal further by writing this book, which did not seem to anyone at the time like it would be possible for a woman to do at that time. And put not only science fiction on the scene, which is our main focus, but proved to the world that female authors could write every bit as well as male authors. And a lot of people accused Mary of writing her husband's coattails, using his fame to launch her career, et cetera, et cetera. Here's a real question for you. I'd like you to compare the cultural impact of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to the cultural impact of the poems of Percy Shelley. There's no fucking comparison. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. There, there is none. Nobody, there's nobody, I've never met a single person who knew the name of a single Percy Shelley poem. Not one. And if they did, they were a classical English major. You know what I mean? Only people who focus on that. Meanwhile, Frankenstein 
they'll probably make another Frankenstein movie in another couple of years. They make yeah. one every decade. And plus, if you give her the credit for launching the science fiction novel, that genre dominates book sales and the uh, box office. Yeah, and you know what's cool about that too is she really launched like the coolest – like melding of genres which is the sci-fi horror right it's so rad. exactly and it starts off with one of the best okay not we talked about star trek already and there are some other examples but by and large it's a scary genre because uh science fiction that is because you talk so much about the unknown about the dangers of the unknown the dangers of science and all that and how science can you know be twisted into something terrible and they still talk about that all the time and she really set the standard for that 200 plus years ago, you know, Yeah. 203 years ago now. So I think it's important that if we're going to talk about the history of women in science fiction, it's important to make the point that there is no separate history. It's not like here's the history of science fiction and then here's the history of women in science fiction. Yeah. It's not that. No, it's the history so cool. of science fiction is the history of women in science fiction. They are hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, they go hand in hand. Women have always been a part of the science fiction community, no matter how much society tried to keep them out of it. They did it anyway. No, it's so rad, man. Mary Shelley, so rad. I'm so glad you brought her up, man. I never, I never really thought of her or Frankenstein being sci-fi, but the more you think about it, you're like, yeah, it is sci-fi. She's reanimating like parts of a body into the dude. It's so freaking cool, man. Even there's parts of me that are like. Well, why wouldn't it work? Why wouldn't it work now? You know, when are they at, when are we actually going to be able to do that? You know, and we do we have continued scientifically as a society. We've continued to explore that idea since then. Like that that idea has never not been being explored. Like reanimation has helped. That's so crazy. Reanimator. The alien movies with the synthetics. Oh man, it's there's so many permutations of it too, right? I mean, you yeah, see it in so many, so, so many. many. Yeah, brought back to life. Don't really remember. Can't. Yeah, dude, it's so cool. It has a legacy that still holds strong till today, and not just. I mean, in both genres, like you say, in both the science fiction and the horror genre. Oh, it's so cool. Let's jump forward, man. Let's. So then we totally. we jump forward to the pill and the sexual revolution, and then we have the beats. Jack Kerouac and William Burroughs and shit just goes off the chain. And from that... Well, well, before we get to that, real quick, I just want to say that during... Uh, let me put this in there before we get to that so it'll, make, it'll be more linear. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so in the early 20th century, up and through the 1950s, before the sexual revolution, there were a number of female science fiction writers. Notably, Andre Norton was very popular. but a lot of these writers were forced to publish books under male pseudonyms. Andre is a really good example. Andre Norton was one of the most popular science fiction writers of the 50s. And I know sales aren't available to look at, but you can look at the number of reprints. And you can find Andre Norton reprints all over the place. And she wrote 80-something books. And although, admittedly, most of her books were fast write, fast read type, type kind of books. You know, not exactly staggering works of literary genius the way Frankenstein is. They were very popular. And this is in an era when the general rule was write it in a month and we're going to publish two of them in the same book. You know what I mean? In like an ace double type situation. So 
the market that she was working in and other writers at that time were working in was kind of a throwaway, fast turnaround, crank them out kind of a market. So it's not exactly Audrey Norton's fault that her books were like that. It was just a sign of the times. Just churning them out, huh? Just churning them out. But there was never a point during the science fiction revolution of the early 20s that women weren't part of the scene. And there were even other famous women like Anne Rand. And I'll go ahead and stop and say, I can't stand Anne Rand's writing. I can't stand her philosophies at all. Uh, and I think that's, you know, pretty popular opinion. She sucks. Uh, yeah, she's <laughs> terrible. But she was famous for writing science fiction. However you put it, she was still a successful science fiction writer. If you could call, I mean, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged are science fiction books. They're not good science fiction books, but they are popular. So I feel like we'd be remiss to have this conversation without mentioning her name. Okay, so all of that happened before the sexual revolution. Let's jump forward to the advent of the pill to the sexual revolution, the civil rights movement, the on the road with Jack Kerouac, shit was going off the chain. And it was during this time that, that Ursula K. Le Guin, which is the, you know, I was first going to talk about Margaret Atwood because she's like my favorite sci-fi writer. But the reality is, is I kind of found that as I looked through the past, hold on a minute with this dog, hold on. Okay. I got a little dog barking. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm a cat person, by the way. I mean, that's why I'm a cat person. Uh, Anyways, so we had this like enormous change that we kind of talked about and we prefaced at the start of this episode with the uh, the 60s. And it's what I found so fascinating about learning about Margaret Atwood and Ursula K. Le Guin is that Ursula K. Le Guin, she was born in 1929. And her father was a famous anthropologist. And he, oh, yeah. he was so famous. His name was Alfred Krober that he became friends with a guy. His name was Ishii. And he was the last of an indigenous group of people called the Yahi. And the okay. Yahi were absolutely genocided and killed by white people. Uh, of course, of by course. colonists, right? And so he was the last of this group. And um, Alfred Krober, who was her fa- Ursula's father, wrote a lot about him, and she grew up hearing about um, Ishii. And what's so what's so cool about it is that Ursula K. Le Guin's science fiction was very anthropological, absolutely, just, just like freaking Star Trek, right? Like I, you said you were you were watching uh, Next Generation. Well, I, I've been going bouncing back and watching. I, I love Next Generation. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. And going back and watching and it's almost like episode after episode is really an anthropological freaking study. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to go to another world and we're going to figure out what that world is about. And then we're going to contrast it with our own world. And we're going to take, you know, these lessons to kind of reflect. It puts like a mirror up for us to reflect on. You know, this is what, you know, what we're dealing with right now. And I what I what I find so fascinating with talking about the uh, the 60s is that, you know, it's almost like to understand what that time was like. We really need to understand what it was like in the 50s, you know, before then, the 40s and the 50s before then. Absolutely. Yes. 
And that's almost impossible to do because you need right. a time machine to do it. Right. For me, I'm like, you know, I can hardly even remember what it's like to not have a cell phone. You know, <laughs> yeah. much less think about growing up in a small town, you know, where, you know, you don't have a car or there's no roads, even if you do have a car, no interstates or freeways, highway system to go travel anywhere anyways. I mean, it's just, you know, before that time, you were probably some kind of a, uh, a pilgrim or you're a pioneer on a horse trying to get somewhere that's going to take you a year, you know, and so the advent of these technologies from the birth control pill to the, to the highways. And I mean, that's just so crazy to think about it. And that's why I really wanted to lead with Ursula K. Le Guin because the impact of her father being an anthropology, uh, an anthropologist like that, it, it really influenced all of her work. And I found that Absolutely. so, so fascinating, man. What's really fascinating about that is that you compared it to Star Trek and, you know, even the original Star Trek was like that as far as being like an anthropological study, exploring strange new worlds, seeking out strange new civilizations. And her career basically mirrors the Star Trek universe as far as on a timeline. Her first two books, Rokanan's World and Planet of Exile, both came out in 1966, the same year that Star Trek, the original series premiered. Ah, wow. That's so cool, man. Okay, so another thing that you were saying is about how it's impossible to track what life was like before. And you're totally right. You're totally right. We can't go live there and know that. But the great tool we have for having some idea is fiction, is science fiction in particular. Yeah. Because you can see, by the way, ideas form in science fiction that these ideas are swimming around in the heads of the generation, you know, the creatives of that generation. So given that Ursula Le Guin and her very anthropological science fiction and Star Trek, which is also a very anthropological science fiction universe, both became very popular during this time frame, gives one the idea that these concepts of opening ourselves up to new cultures, having empathy for people that are different than yourselves and wanting to understand them, wanting to understand other points of view, became a really popular idea among thinkers in this time. And obviously, that is a main theme of both of those things, but certainly a main thing of uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's Hainish Cycle books. That's right. In the book that I wanted to talk about, which is, I think I talked about earlier, one of her books, The Lab of Heaven, which is really freaking cool book, man. It's one of my favorite books right. that she wrote, and it's really influenced by Taoist. You know, she's really into Taoism which is this contrast of light and dark and very martial arts and, you know, such an influence on the Star Wars universe. And in fact, I think she even mm -hmm. published a translation of the Tao Te Ching, which is you can find the PDF of it online. I love the Tao Te Ching. I, I'll read it every few days, just passages here and there. I even have a little app on my uh, iPhone with the Tao Te Ching in it. But she was very influenced by the Tao Te Ching and, and uh, it's one of the things that I, I really love about the book, The Lab of Heaven. So I, re I really recommend that book. Um, but the book I wanted to talk about. And you guys can go back and listen to our book recommendation episode a few episodes back. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good one. But the book I wanted to talk about today is The Left Hand of Darkness, which is part mm -hmm. of that Hainish universe. She basically created this universe in which there were, I want to call it like a federation of planets. 
It is. It is kind of like a very loose affiliation yes. planet. And so the book is about an ambassador who is going to uh, another planet, and he is trying to encourage them to join. Did you read the le- I don't know if you've ever read it. Oh, it's one of my favorite books ever written. I absolutely it's so I absolutely kick in with it. I a, love a, it, right? It. It's one of the, I mean, it is, besides being a page turner, the ideas in it are just wonderful. And it's beautifully, beautifully written. Yeah, so he's an ambassador, and he's trying to talk them into joining the Ukamon, right? I, that sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah, and so the Ukamon is the Coalition of Planets, and um, his name is Genli, and he is uh, – but what's cool about the book is that it is directly rooted in feminism and everything that was happening during the 60s because he starts butting up against – these ideas, you know, he's like very rooted in a, you know, uh, a patriarchal society in which consumerism and uh, is just rules of the day. And so when he goes to this other planet, they are androgynous, right? And um, well, the way the way things work on their planet is that on Carhide, on Carhide, the th- way things work on Carhide is that people are gender neutral. Like they don't have sex organs until they go into a certain cycle. And then when that happens, when they're fertile, basically, they then develop sexual identities and it could be either male or female. They don't, you don't know, you never know. So any individual goes through their life basically completely androgynous until a mating opportunity presents itself and then they develop sex organs temporarily. Which is freaking crazy because how much are we still dealing with this issue i mean and people are it up is in arms. a hot button issue like crazy right now and this book was written more than 50 years ago and was a huge hit it was a big success it won the hugo award it won the nebula award for best novel it's considered by many to be the greatest or one of the top three or five greatest science fiction novels ever written and it's specifically about this thing and it's in that regard. You're right. It's so ahead of its time. No, and it's it's so cool because again, it's you know, it's it, what I find funny about it is that when we started this podcast, we were like, okay, we're not going to get political. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the reality is, is you can't read science fiction without being political. Absolutely, because it's rooted in politics. It's rooted in anthropology. It's rooted in you know, it really, like we said, it's about putting a mirror up. And 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 really, I think that is what is so rad is by cloaking these discussions in in of hard issues in pseudo fantasy or or foretelling of the future Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it we're able to deal with them and it strips away some of that our defenses and that's the beauty of sci-fi right yeah and there's no way to escape it you know because this is look at when she's writing this thing look at when she's motivated and you know what's cra- – I don't know if you knew this, but what's crazy is that she caught, especially as time went on, she caught a lot of shit mm-hmm. for the how she wrote this book because most of the gender like pronouns, it's all he, he, he. Right. And Neil Gaiman talked about that, and even she talked about that, yes, at first she said, I was very, very defensive – but the more time went on, I realized, you know what? I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And Neil Gaiman talked about that too. He's like, he's, listen, man, it's one of the greatest books ever written. But, you know, she was a product of her time. Obviously, now I don't think 
that she would have written it with that gender pronouns. And I was like, wow. This is a great segue into the book I'm reading right now. She's a modern author who's writing right now. Mm -hmm. I'm reading Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. And it was written in 2013. And it was this author, Anne Leckie's debut novel. And it won the Hugo Award for Best Novel and the Nebula Award and the Arthur C. Clarke Award and the BSFA Award. Everyone who's read this book has been like, this is a really, really great book. And it has a lot. Okay, it's got a completely different plot than any of the books I've read by Ursula K. Le Guin. The basic plot is a spaceship's artificial intelligence is able to split itself off into various drones, basically called Mm -hmm. ancillaries, and be individually conscious, but be part of the larger consciousness of the ship's AI. And it's about a ancillary who is cut off from the rest of her consciousness, or their consciousness, I should say, when the ship is destroyed. And that ancillary's quest to seek revenge. And it's super, super, super good. But one of the great things about this book is that the culture that the ancillary is from has gender blindness. That is to say that they don't address people by a specific gender or use pronouns in that way. But the ancillary trying to navigate a world around them uses the feminine pronoun her in every situation that's in any way confusing, in any way ambiguous at all. So that ancillary defaults to the her pronoun, the feminine pronoun. And let me tell you, it is used to awesome effect in this book. Wow. Like how? What do you mean? Well, uh, One of the great things about it is that the ancillary narrates the book, the entire book. And the ancillary explains about the trickiness of using the wrong pronouns in certain situations because in certain cultures that the ancillary encounters, using the wrong gender pronouns can be taboo. Or it can be really awkward to phrase what you're trying to say in a way that precludes using gender at all. And Uh. when you try to say it without trying to get around gender, it becomes really, really awkward or really hard to say or hard, difficult for people of a specific culture to understand, which when you think about it is how our culture is too. When you just use they and their, which you totally can easily do, it does create a lot of ambiguousness. And if you were to refer to somebody who is very clearly male presenting, male identifying as a her, you can create an insult or insult them or cause problems. And obviously that's a gigantic debate in the world right now. No, and it's and for a writer it's a big deal because you really want specificity is such a, a an important aspect of writing. You know what I mean? I mean I for me with writing, I'm always thinking about my mm-hmm. word choice mm-hmm. and I'm always thinking I want this to translate right into the brain so no one's sitting there right. mulling what I'm yes. trying to say. I want them to know exactly what I'm trying to say. All of this is to say, I'm not quite finished with this book yet. I have another like 40 pages. I, I almost finished it today before we did this podcast, but I wanted to watch Star Trek, so I did that instead. <laughs> I'm sta- I want to savor the ending until I could really like sit down and enjoy it. But all of this is really to say that Le Guin's influence all the way back with Left Hand of Darkness is still being felt today, 50 years later. Uh, well, this was probably about 40-something years later. And her influence is, still looms very large in the world of science fiction. No, that's wild, man. That's what's so crazy about the 60s is that we're still dealing with a hangover of these issues. And we still have this, you know, where we have Black Lives Matter and we have so many. We have, dude, we're going through the biggest regression ever in voting rights that has ever occurred in the country. 
since Jim Crow. You know, I mean, it's this is madness what's happening in America. It really is. I mean, like if you lose a bunch of elections and then your response to that is to change the rules of the next election. So people of color can't vote because that's what's happening in America. How can you possibly claim to have any sort of moral standing and not just be obviously power grabbing? I think with the GOP, there is no more pretense of freaking morality because the whole family values thing, that all went out the window when they elected and embraced someone who was with a porn star and pussy grabbing and all that shit. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, you know, they've, they've still got Matt Gatz. As one of their like speakers, like big time names, and you know this guy's like, Ooh. and it goes on and on. Like there's there's a long history of outspoken conservatives turning out to be gigantic fucking scumbags. When you, in my opinion, broadcast a holier than thou pretense, you're almost always hiding some shady shit behind it, and that that runs across the board for all people of all walks of life throughout history. When you have to project that kind of morality, it's usually because you're hiding something you're immoral. No two ways about it. No two ways about it. Okay, anyway. All right, so next one up is Margaret Atwood, and she is by far one of my favorite writers. Definitely my, uh, I would say, my favorite sci-fi writer. Oh, good choice. Uh, and good I, choice. And I talked about, uh, I think in the book episode last, about her series, the Mad Adam series that starts with Orcs and mm. Crake. And I recommend this to everybody, man. Orcs and Crake. I think I've read uh, the first book probably 10 times. It's so freaking good, man. So if you haven't read it, check them out. All three of them are are just as good. And I've read them all numerous times. So that's a really good one. But uh, But again, Margaret Atwood, she is kind of her background is she's from Canada. Her father was also a, uh, a scientist. He was an entomologist and studied uh, forests. She grew up in northern Quebec, and she was just a, a voracious freaking reader, big time reader, which, you know, really is. You know, what, dude, when people talk to me about writing, the first thing they're like, yeah, I want to write. I want to write. The first thing I ask them is well, do you read? Yeah. Do you read all the time? <laughs> do you read like a fanatic? Because if you don't, it's kind of like with surfing, dude. If you're a surfer, you watch surf videos all the time. Right. You know, no matter what it is that you do, you're so, if you're really into it, you want to watch people do it and learn from the best and all that. Writing is really just an extension of reading. If you don't read, you can forget about writing. You know what I mean? When people ask me for advice on writing, I always say the same thing. You need to do two things to be a good writer. You need to read and you need to write. And There's no no other way around it, right? You just have to do both of those things a lot. And then eventually you'll get good. Yeah. And and, and what happens too is is, uh, one more note on that is that the more you write, you develop new skills in reading and you start to read. I'm sure that's happened with you with editing and all. Sure, sure. Is that uh, you just start to look at the, what you're reading differently. It makes you, it's co- probably like cooking, right? You know, if you're a chef, you watch, probably watch a lot of cooking shows and totally. the more you cook, the more when you go out to eat, you probably eat, you even taste food differently. You're like, what are they doing here? How are they? You know what I mean? Your brain just starts dissecting everything differently. That's why reading. So anyways, Margaret Atwood, massive reader, of course. And um, she grew up, like I said, in uh, Quebec. 
in Canada, one of the things that, uh, and again, remember that she was, she came up during this time. She was very influenced. She got her, uh, master's degree in 1962. So, you know, she was coming of age during this whole, again, cultural revolution. And, uh, what I, she was at first, she was a poet. And so she was always writing poetry and uh, one of the coolest things that I uh, that I read about her was that she wrote a poem called Half Hanged Mary. OK. And it was about Mary Webster. And Mary Webster was uh, was a woman who in the 17th century was hung for being a witch. Okay. And one, uh, yeah. And so, and she dedicated, she not only wrote a poem about her. So Margaret Atwood said she was, uh, related to Mary Webster. She not only wrote a poem about her, but she also dedicated the handmaid's tale to her. Uh, so Mary Webster was accused of being a witch and she was, she survived like a hanging and, uh, being beaten and buried in snow. And she was at this point, the woman was 60 years old and lived in one of these colonies. And so these white men just like took this shit out on her. And, you know, one of the things let's be real about the, the whole Salem witch trials and all that is that you, you generally had white males who were being, who were justified in their minds by their religion right. to, to, to just, uh, to just abuse women. And if you think about it, that's what Handmaid's Tale is. Absolutely. And, so, uh, and, you know, I think a lot of times religion gets used as a scapegoat for power or control and power. And that's what I was trying to say earlier uh, when we were talking about um, the nuclear family and all that. And basically the power structure is set up a certain way. And anybody whose behavior threatens that power structure in any way, like, for example, women realizing that they're not necessarily – expected or destined to only be a wife and mother with their life and they might have some other thing to do with their life is a threat to that power structure you know what i mean and so that you can use religion as a instrument by which to punish these people so that that behavior is deemed you know aberrant or sinful ungodly whatever word you want to associate with it either way it's not allowed you think you're not allowed to behave that way you're not allowed to be a free thinking woman then you'll get burned as a witch you're not allowed to be yeah. a free-thinking woman because you're a handmaid, and that's God's will or whatever. Yeah, and so handmaid. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people that listen to the podcast have uh, have watched the uh, Hulu series, The Handmaid's Tale, mm -hmm. which is based on the novel, and the series is so freaking powerful mm. because it just hammers. Home. Have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen the first two and a half seasons. Oh my gosh, it's so powerful, right? Absolutely. You it's know, you just. It's so popular heavy. for a it's reason. So heavy. Yeah. And so you just got this situation where you've got this futuristic, you know, America that falls. And I think it's Canada that's more of a free society, right? Right, right. And the United States has fallen and it's being run, at least this central portion of it is being run by a very religious, you know, evangelical group that have taken over and they just oppress and i think birth rates are you know sterility is everywhere i don't even know if we know why yeah uh, birth rates decline and it gives this group the leverage to come back with their like fascist ideology or pro yeah, or it's like but it's uh, specifically like a uh, anti-women patriarchal like fat it's like a fa it's a fascist patriarchy is what it is 
Yeah, it is. And so they force these women to give birth. The women who are not the wives, they force them. They become handmaids. And then the handmaids go live with the, the couple who is sterile, the woman's sterile, let's say. So the man is having sex with her, but it can't be anything that's sexual. But, of course, that's all a lie. And, of course, and it's rape. It's, you know, it's non-consensual sex. These women don't have a choice, obviously. They're not like – Yeah, they're being raped and – they're not like a side relationship. You know what I mean? It's just a tool. They're being used as like a tool for sex, like nothing else and kept prisoner. And it is a horror show. It is. It really is. It's it's terrifying. Dude, you're like watching it or reading the book and you're like, Oh, so this is what it must be like, you know, if you're being married off. And, And one of the things keep in mind is that Margaret Atwood has fiercely resisted the title of science fiction for her works. Right. She's yeah. like that's that's actually true of a lot of science fiction writers. I've noticed that before as well. Yeah, uh, she but, says speculative fiction. She said nothing that I write about can't happen or isn't happening. I'm like, well, okay, well, warp drive can happen. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. anyways, I think she softened yeah, yeah, I, a little bit from that position since uh at first, but uh but you know, one of the things is that, you know, as far as handmaid's tale, you know, there are corollaries for this in other parts of the world. You know, when I uh when I went to Chechnya, I was just like hor- I came back and told my daughter, you need to just be so grateful that you were born mm-hmm. in the Western United, you know, the Western world in an industrialized country and you didn't grow up like, like women did in these, uh, these, you know, very, very hardcore religious societies in the middle East. And, uh, because I never saw anything like that. And I was like, Holy shit, this is handmaid's tale. You know what I mean? They will stone your woman. They will, you know? Right. So that's kind of the, the point I'm making is that, you know, the reality is this handmaid's tale is going on right now. You know, we do have that happening right now. It's just not happening in our backyard to the extent that it happens in this book. But it's happening in other parts of the world. You know, it's a very yeah, it relevant was, story. We were watching uh, Handmaid's Tale, my wife and I, and obviously it's sickening. It's a great show, but it's sickening and it's hard to watch. But while when the show is being aired, the pussy grabber in chief is elected to president. You know what I mean? So it became this very like abstract reality we're living in. Talk about living in the simulation, man. It became very obvious that we were just like a breath away from fascism. Dude. Because these kinds of things became like, not only were they acceptable, people were outspoken in the defense of them. People's with every sort of detestable fascist point of view came out of the woodwork. We're like, yeah, no, yeah, that's the good stuff. Let's all be idiotic fascists and support raping women and support, you know, assault and stuff because... What are we, communists or whatever argument they're making? I mean, it's important to keep in mind that it's all degrees, right? And so we... we, Right, it's all degrees. Yeah, we have situations in the United States where, you know, men are are tracking their girlfriends or wives' phones, you know, and putting malware or any kind of program on there. I need to know exactly where you are every moment of the day. They were talking about that with the new Apple AirTags that just came out. Or, you know, you could put that on someone's car and they're not going to know it's on there and it's going to tell you everywhere they go. And it's like, holy shit, man, this is we're right back in Handmaid's Tale just in a new right. way. You know, it's fuck it, dude, it's heavy, man. 
we don't escape it because ultimately it's like the Taoism that, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin, like the light and dark. It's both of them are within all of us. And we constantly right. need no to doubt. be aware that they're there and they don't go away. And that's one of the reasons that female writers are really important is because that's stuff that we need to be made aware of is often hard for us to see as men without somebody explaining it to us from a different yeah, point of view. I, I wouldn't have gotten it to the extent I did with Handmaid's Tale. It made me just go, oh my gosh. Yeah. In my opinion, perspective is really the spice of life. If you want to grow intellectually, if you want to have opinions that matter to people, that change the world, you need perspective. And the only way you're going to get it is by listening to other people. Yeah. And listen to people that are different than you, not just other people, people that are markedly different, from different cultures, different backgrounds, different races, different sexes, all that. And I think that kind of leads us into our next author. We're kind of running short on time here, but I definitely want to make sure that I make room for uh, another one of my favorite female science fiction writers, Octavia Butler. Yeah. I admit that I didn't start reading Octavia Butler until about five or six or seven years ago. I can't remember when I first read it, but I've read three of her books and they are goddamn awesome science fiction books. The ones I've read were Kindred, which is sort of a science, it's not really quite science fiction. It's almost like a fantasy. It's a time travel book. But there's no time travel mechanism. It's just unexplained time travel. So that one's kind of on the line as far as being science fiction. But I still put anything time travel into the umbrella of science fiction. But that one's really great. And that one explores a black woman in the 70s being randomly thrown back into plantation days in Virginia and being on a plantation and having all of her 1970s knowledge and perspective being in a situation where... She's looked at as nothing more than property. That book was really great for opening my eyes a lot. Another great book by her is Wild Seed, which is sort of a mutant superpower type origin story that dates way back to Africa in like ancient times. And the people with different powers, I should say, the main character is able to transform herself into different animals. And these people end up in the United States, some being taken on slave ships, some being ending up there other ways. And it's about how they live in America through all these changes. And they have like extremely long lifespans. And, you know, these characters are in many ways superior to everyone around them, having these incredible abilities and these extra long lives, but are still looked at as just property again. And that's a really, really interesting story for me as well. And uh, she also has another great one called The Parable of the Sower, which is sort of a post-apocalyptic book. And all of these kind of fall under the umbrella of Afrofuturism, which is a subgenre of science fiction. It's based on the African or the Black experience. I'm so glad I read these books because the perspective I gained from them was invaluable and is invaluable. And I will continue to read more as my life goes on. But it also showed me that people from all walks of life, be, be a woman, be a man, Black, white, whatever it is, still have just as uh, much of a chance of being a good science fiction writer as anybody else. The talent doesn't discriminate at all in any way. And, you know, the Afrofuturist movement gave birth to some, a bunch of other really great authors as well. I just read Binti by Nanetti Okorafor, which is an Afrofuturist novella, excellent book. So I just wanted to make sure that if we're talking about perspectives and we're talking about women in science fiction, we definitely got to talk about Octavia Butler. Definitely at least mention her body of work. Dude, she's so rad. So, yeah. so awesome. And, you know, her backstory is that she grew up reading science fiction books and thinking, why isn't there any black people? Why are there any females in these stories? And was just like, oh, nuts to this. I can write better than this. 
and just did. <laughs> That's so rad. Starting as a teenager, you know what I mean? And her books were always well-received. I mean, she's a MacArthur Fellow. You know what I mean? She got a MacArthur Fellowship. She won the Hugo and Nebula Awards. Like, she was a story writer, and it had nothing to do with social justice, affirmative action, or whatever. It was all before that happened. She won all of her credits entirely on, and again, I don't want to say that, give anybody the impression that I'm against affirmative action. I don't, it's just a, a criticism that some people have of affirmative action is they believe that it puts people who don't deserve a position in that position because of other factors. That's not the truth. That's not what affirmative action does. It just looks to seek out people that qualify that weren't necessarily white people. That's all it does. It doesn't give the job to anybody less deserving ever. So get that thought out of your head. But just to make sure that argument is completely avoided, she was ahead of that game. She was ahead of the affirmative action movement and all that with her the majority of her writing. Well, that's a great thing about art, dude, is art stands on its own. It stands on its day. own. Exactly. The big takeaway from this episode for me is that don't dig your heels in on things. You know, don't assume that you don't need a additional perspective. Don't assume that the perspective you have is enough because it's never enough. There is never enough. Don't dismiss things by people that aren't like you because they're not like you or they're not about people like you. Even if it's not, you know, the perspective is going to do you a lot of good. So I guess that's that's really my big take on this one. I, I love that. I, w- I was talking to a uh, a kid the other day, and he was he was uh, he was asking me, young kid, he's going to school. He's like, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to major in. I might major in business or whatever. And I said, listen, do you know Steve Jobs? You know it, it one of the few classes he took, and he said it was the most important thing he ever learned. But it was a class in college that he took. You know what it was on? What's that? It was on calligraphy, <laughs> <laughs> and he his point was we need to round ourselves out as human beings mm-hmm. because we never know when a different perspective on something might just change the world absolutely absolutely him learning calligraphy is what influenced the mac in which he said i don't want it to 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 look like a typewriter i don't want it to write like a typewriter i want to do something that's never been done i wanted to do calligraphy and that changed the world and so it's no different. Everything that we can do that rounds us out and gives us a new perspective makes us a more unique and rich individual. So I love that, man. Awesome. This has been a great episode. I'm really happy with this one. And hopefully it will uh, encourage some of our listeners to check out some of these female authors and just be open-minded to reading books by female authors, reading books by authors from different cultures, different races, that kind of thing. Because uh, that's really, you know, like we keep saying, it's it, it will change your life eventually. It really will. Like you, you will think differently and thinking differently sounds scary when you think a certain way. But believe me, every time I've changed my way of thinking, it's always been for the better. Awesome. All right, brother. Until next time. Late. Later, man. So guys, uh, Tooth and I recorded that last episode, Women in Science Fiction, just the two of us. And previous to that episode, we hadn't had any guests on the podcast at all. But I felt like we would be remiss to not get the perspective of an actual woman who's involved in science fiction as, you know, ours is pretty limited, as I mentioned on the episode. So we decided to bring on uh, my friend and Infinite Worlds contributor and also the singer of the band The Deers, Natalia Yanchak. Hello, Natalia. Hi. I didn't realize I was your first guest. That's a big honor. 
Yeah, we uh, mostly it's just Tooth and I just running our mouths. But, you know, I, we've considered getting guests a lot, but we both have really hectic schedules. Actually, mine's not hectic. I work at home. But Tooth lives in a van and is traveling all over the place and is about to move to Europe and is basically a nomad. So scheduling things is a bit of a challenge. So we basically have just not done that. <laughs> I just got back from Costa Rica, Natalia. So oh, I'm always awesome. trying. My, I'm always on the run, man. Always. <laughs> what are you running from? I don't know if I'm <laughs> running from or running to. I haven't figured that out yet. It could be both. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's the, uh, I think it changes. It's the Ouroboros. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> okay, so uh, today we're uh, here to talk about women in science fiction. And Natalia, as you are a woman in science fiction, it's true. She Natalia has a story in the second issue of Infinite Worlds magazine called Taste of Enderby, and it's sort of a parable about the festival musician life, but it's also about giant robotic dinosaurs, and it's one of my favorite stories I've had a chance to publish. You want to start by telling us about your writing, maybe tell us about the story some, that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm a musician by trade, and uh, but I, I went to university for creative writing, and then when I graduated, I was like, I hate creative writing. <laughs> so I didn't write for... 10 years or something. Mm. I'm also super old as I'm revealing through this interview. At least 20. At least 28. Yeah, exactly. So I stopped writing. I did like some journalism and, you know, writing about music and stuff like that. Then I went on tour for a long time and then I decided I wanted to start writing again. And what else is more liberating than writing science fiction. Oh, man. So I started writing science fiction and I determined I would finish long form work before a certain age, which is much older than 28. <laughs> and well, not much older, but anyway. Somewhat older. Somewhat, a few years older. <laughs> and so I just started writing again, writing stories and stuff like that. And I just, it's just very fun. And mm -hmm. that's why I do it, because it's fun. And that story, like, I don't usually write about being a musician or being in the music industry, because I'm like, being a musician for such a long time kind of also ruined music for me. I can't mm -hmm. really listen to it non-critically. And, you know, writing science fiction was escapism for me. So it's like, I don't want to write about the music business, even though it's what I know the most about. So Taste of Enderby was actually, I wrote it while I was on tour. We were on tour driving through Canada and there's a town in British Columbia in the mountains called Enderby. And so I imagined a, a music slash food truck festival in this town called Enderby. And, you know, the rest is only available in issue two of Infinite Worlds. <laughs> And you guys can buy that at Infinite Worlds Magazine. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm so bad at product placement. Like we've been doing this. This is like the 18th episode of the show. And I only ever mention Infinite Worlds, the magazine, like as an afterthought, like on two episodes <laughs> or something. You know, we're doing this because we love doing it, not because I'm trying to sell things necessarily. But, uh, you know, it, yeah, for fun, for fun. Just that, so I can totally feel you when you say that you gravitated towards science fiction for fun. Tooth and I are both science fiction writers. Uh, I don't know if you know that or not. You've read some of my work mm -hmm. and I have a ton of short stories as well. And Tooth has a novel in the works called Arc Zero, uh, which I've had the chance to read and it's pretty good. So, awesome. you know, we can commiserate with you. <laughs> Wait a second. I said it was pretty good. What I meant to say was <laughs> I've only gotten a chance to read some of it. And the part I read was really good. I just can't. It's, 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 not, it's incomplete. It's not bad. Is, all, is what I meant to say. <laughs> 
Dude, that way, I, I think your work is great. And your new thing, too. Well, can you tell me the name of your new project again? It's called Into the Void, and I'm dropping uh, flash fiction like every week or so. Yes. Really enjoying it. So in that way that we can commiserate with you about being in that line of work, or at least that line of interest, Mm. you know, obviously you've got one thing going on totally different than we do. And that is that you're looking at this whole thing from the perspective of a woman. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's something that we're really interested in for this episode. This is like completely just me. I don't perceive myself as a woman in science fiction. I'm just a person writing science fiction. But I understand when you get to like a marketing level, because I've been in the music industry, I, I only think about art in terms of like, how do we market this? And that's what people need to sell books. Sort of like only when I got to the process of starting to do outreach and like submit my workplaces and see what people were looking for. That's when it sort of occurred to me that the market in a way and the readership defines it in different terms. I mean, for sure, the fact that we're even doing an episode about women in science fiction mm-hmm. speaks to the the fact that, you know, it's seen as like almost a subgenre of the genre, even though, you know, clearly it's not. If something was submitted anonymously without any name attached at all, you know, how would anybody tell the writer was male or female, you know? So I could definitely understand what you're saying about just feeling like you're just trying to be a person writing and not be defined by your, you know, yeah, gender. And I guess that only really occurred to me like... When I went to start submitting, you know, there's some places that ask for blind submissions that you remove all of your personal information from your submission. And that's kind of rare. Yeah, I haven't come across that yet. That's interesting. Yeah. And then at the agent and like different publications and publishers, they've really like ratcheted it up. And what they want more than anything is work from like equity seeking groups And, you know, for me as a cisgender, heterosexual white woman, I'm not in an equity seeking group, but I kind of am in an Mm -hmm. equity seeking group, but obviously on a way lesser scale. Right. To me, it's, it's interesting, like it's cool and it's amazing, but it's like you're driving at 60 miles an hour and then you're putting your car in reverse. You can't just correct systemic barriers in like one second. And so sometimes... As a woman in science fiction, it's just super weird trying to get out there in a way. I guess it doesn't really answer the question, but... Anything you say is an answer to the question. I guess it's my experience. That's what we're really after here, I think. Yeah. And it's also like as someone who's making a late entry, and I'm not like 20 years old, because clearly my previous story is not way older than 20. There's also ageism in certain circles. Let's talk let's talk about that. Yeah. I'll go ahead and reveal my age. <laughs> Feel free to, you know, keep yours yeah, as secret as you like. But I'm 37 and uh, I'm just coming up on ending my first novel now and I don't know if I'm considered young or old mm-hmm. for other writers. Nick, you're a little older than me, not a ton older, but a little older. Have you experienced anything like that in the publishing industry so far? No, not really. I mean, I, I, I tend to think that just great work speaks for itself. First and foremost, as a writer, you have to be an incessant reader. And it's just so hard finding something to connect with that for me, I don't care anything about who the author is. For me, that's it's silly. I mean, like when I was coming up, there was no internet when I was a little kid. You know, all of us, there was no internet. And so when we right. would read books, I mean, you'd have like a little bitty blurb and a picture on the back of the book that was probably 50 years old. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. all I cared about was, does this transport me somewhere else? 
that's it. And, you know, I still look for that. And that is just so freaking rare. And I think that tends to be, you know, the currency of writing and reading. And it just happens. We've both found stories by authors that were men and women. We've talked about this quite a bit now that are able to do that. We've talked about our favorite books and our favorite writers on multiple episodes. And, you know, we've mentioned tons of men and tons of women at this point. Speaking of that, Natalia, what are some of your influences in the genre? Well, you know, speaking to it being women in science fiction, I was looking at my bookcase of, you know, my collected in real life books. And I was like, oh, there's a lot of men here. (laughs) Mm. There's not a lot of female writers. And, you know, that's my own. That's my own. I don't know. The writers that I love that really got me into science fiction are like the first gateway, really, like when I was a teenager is like Douglas Adams. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a pretty common gateway drug. Yeah. Uh, A lot lot, lot of hitchhiker people out there. Yeah. And then, you know, Kurt Vonnegut's another huge gateway. Mm -hmm. People don't really realize that that's science fiction a lot of times. Oh, yeah. We did a Vonnegut episode. That was like our fourth or fifth episode. Yeah. Yeah. And then who was the uh, Philip K. Dick was huge. Like Philip K. Dick, I think, is my favorite author. We've uh, mentioned Philip K. Dick a lot on this show. That's one of my favorite authors. I'm in the process of trying to read all of his novels, which I've never done with any writer before, but you know, it's a yeah. long haul. And then, you know, William Gibson, some CanCon, throw some CanCon in there. Mm. How about women writers? Women writers. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, more recently, as I was going through like my bookcase, I was like, oh, these are the things. Oh, J.G. Ballard was the other one that I really liked. Oh, yeah. Nice. It came out of nowhere. I love it. <laughs> But like more recently, I've tried to be more conscious about making more diverse selections with what I'm reading. I recently read a book called Company Town by Madeline Ashby. That was just fucking amazing. I was just like, yes, I'm back. I'm in, you know, like I, you know, there's new, exciting Canadian sci-fi. And then, you know, also read a short story by Rebecca Roanhorse called Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience. And okay. it's awesome. She's an indigenous, I think, American writer. And Martha Wells, the Murderbot series, super fun. And then also I have a friend, her name is Cecil Castellucci, and she writes comics for DC, and she's an amazing writer. So, okay. And then my list sort of deviated into like film and TV writers. So, (laughs) well, I think, I mean, I think that's, you know, important too. Like, I think, you know, just because, for example, like we all write science fiction doesn't mean all of our influences are science fiction writers necessarily yeah like you know what i mean yeah yeah totally so like i'd love to hear about all of your different influences as well but one thing i'm noticing is that um you did say recently you've been getting into lady writers and that you know all time you know it was historically mostly male writers do you do you attribute that to like you said uh do you attribute that to just not really paying attention to that question when you pick a book to read or do you attribute that in some way to them having a minority share in the books published over the 20th century? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I think it's a little bit of both. Like, I just read what I was interested in and what sounded cool and what, like, you know, I didn't really think about who the writer was. You know, like Tooth said, it's like just amazing work. That's what I'm, that's what I want to read. Is it dominance? I had to read Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin in high school. And, you know, I kind of was not really into it. <laughs> Man, I can't, I can't imagine. Like, honestly, I was an avid reader in high school, but I would think The Left Hand of Darkness would be a challenging book for any high school age person, 
you know, I, I, it just seems like a little young to try to appreciate something like that. Yeah, we had an English teacher that also made us read like uh, Gilgamesh or something. And I, oh, and my I was goodness. just like, what? You know, he was cool. He wore Birkenstocks, you know, oh, in the, okay, in the yeah. 90s. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I'm, I'm wearing Crocs now. Is that like yeah, the same thing? I'm wearing loafers. It's like over. It's over. <laughs> okay, so... When you talk about women in science fiction, and I'm hearing from a woman in science fiction, obviously, you know, women in science fiction isn't a monolith at all, and that every individual person's experience will be different, you know, man and woman. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer of that. And that's kind of, you know, that's why I'm like nodding my head when you guys are telling me, you know, just read what's good and not, you know, read a woman writer or read a male writer or whatever Mm. part of me like the majority of me is like yeah i I think that's the right attitude to have or whatever but also i kind of keep getting these flashes of the um oh i'm colorblind i don't see race and how i think that can be a little problematic too you know not that gender and race are the same thing at, at all but you know i feel like they're discussions that sometimes people ignore because they want to have the uh, attitude of looking past the discussion, mm. you know, saying like, we're, we're beyond that. We're beyond racism. We're beyond sexism. And, you know, as individuals, I think, you know, we strive to do that, but you know, obviously you guys have got to tell me, you know, you guys have to tell me, uh, is the discussion even worth it to have? Well, I mean, that's like asking, does unconscious bias exist? It's always going to exist. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. whether right. we know it or not. And it is a conversation to have, but have you felt like you've faced any sort of discrimination at all being a, a woman in this industry? I, you know, obviously you're cisgendered and you're white, heterosexual, as you described yourself. It's very revealing, that statement, actually, now that I think about it. I mean, look, OK, my husband is black and my kids are mixed race. I have seen so much racism like it is happens all the time. It's pretty intense by people who, you know, you're super surprised that they say something super racist to you. So I guess I make that statement because I have like an awareness of that unconscious bias and how people can like um, these like microaggressions and they don't realize they're being a total dick, but they totally are. Mm. So, I mean, I guess as far as have I experienced that as a woman writing science fiction, I feel like I haven't. I feel like maybe I'm just not immersed enough in certain communities or maybe I just like reject when it does happen. But in my experience, I feel like the community has been super positive and welcoming. And I mean, it's like, you know, Star Trek is just like, that's what it's about. Everyone is the same, you know, so... <laughs> yeah, we, we're both big Star Trek fans. Uh, yeah, Trekkers or Trekkies, whichever you prefer. Uh, we 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 did an episode about that. We talk about that a lot when we do have these discussions. Do you guys know about this guy in upstate New York that bought all the sets from CBS and you could go tour them? Have you heard about this? He bought the OG ones the, for yeah, the original. The, Yes, he like recreated no. all these. It's like totally illegal. Like I'm surprised. I don't know if it's still open, but I was like, "Oh my god, we have to go." Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> wow, uh, f- field trip. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, yeah. I would definitely be interested in that. I mean, I, I have to Google that now. <laughs> Maybe it's in Vermont. Actually, it's like super close to us, so it's like that's why I was like, we could do this in a day. That's not very super close to where I am, but uh, yeah. Or I would say it's not close to Tooth either, but you know, he's he's super mobile. <laughs> So <laughs> I'm sorry, I totally derailed. No, it's okay. It's a conversation. I'm not leading to anything with this discussion. I wanted this to be a really open ended discussion with open minds. So there's no like point I'm trying to make here at all. You know, we decided that we want to do the episode and we talked about it. And I just definitely wanted to get 
somebody else's point of view besides just the two of us. Yeah, totally. You talked about unconscious biases and, you know, for you, it's been mostly race related and less gender related. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to argue that sexism is still alive and well in the world. Yeah, oh, I, I've experienced lots of sexism in a non-science fiction related <laughs> milieu. Do, do you think um, science fiction is kind of a safe haven these days for you then? For me? Well, yeah, it's totally, it's like, I can do anything. I can write about anything and, you know, doesn't matter. That Honestly, that just fills my heart with pure joy because, you know, okay, so I run Infinite Worlds and I run the Instagram page and... I run it differently than a, a lot of other science fiction pages run theirs, but uh, I, I have a lot of trolls. You know, I mean, I guess any bit large page is going to have trolls, <laughs> but lots of sexist trolls here and there. And it makes me afraid that the community at large is harboring these people. You know what I mean? Because I feel like they feel like they can get away with that kind of language or whatever in different places or whatever. But it's making me want to believe by hearing this conversation that. Really, I am just dealing with just trolls who don't represent anything at all except losers with a lot of time on their hands. Well, I mean, that that exists everywhere. True. That exists, like, not just in science fiction. That exists, like... Everywhere. Yeah. Just everywhere. go on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, no just, kidding. I can't even... Have, it's insane. Have you heard about Reddit? Have you been on Reddit? <laughs> have you heard of this, oh thing? Have you heard of this thing called? Have you heard of this thing called Reddit? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh! Right? Oh, and I, you know, what's funny is I've never really been on 4chan, but I just saw that documentary on QAnon on HBO, oh and I God. was just horrified when they were talking about <laughs> like how bad it really gets. It's like, oh my gosh! Yeah. You tell you, you're Canadian, and obviously one of our authors that we've mentioned several times and mentioned in this episode, uh, Margaret Atwood, is Canadian. Mm-hmm. And her most, maybe not, I don't want to necessarily say her most famous, but one of her most famous works is, you know, a TV series now. And it's really about this subject mm-hmm. of sexism and misogyny uh, in the world. While this is happening, you also see, you know, simultaneously the rise of the Proud Boys and Donald Trump and the uh, QAnon. QAnon and, and, all, yeah. and all of these groups, all of these groups that are like kind of like outspokenly promoting sexism when you you know see those things kind of side by side how do you feel about that what, what, what thoughts does that give you it's like talking about two things that exist at opposite ends of some sort of cultural spectrum you know mm-hmm. it's like if something's being produced by a huge production company they're going to be slightly more you know woke than the trolls you know mm-hmm. living sure, under the sure. bridge <laughs> You know, for some reason, this is what I thought of when you were like talking about that phenomenon of this super misogynist culture coming up. Something that drives me crazy is like things that are pink. Why do you need a pink AR? Why do you need pink boxing gloves? That just makes me crazy. <laughs> Reinforces the binary gender. Yeah, it's like I want to do tough man stuff, but I want to do it in pink. Trust me, you're not going to make me understand that. I, I, I don't <laughs> even get owning an AR, like, or at least I can understand in certain situations. If you live out in like the swamp or something like that, and you have to deal with fifty to a hundred wild ho- feral hogs on your property or whatever the meme was. <laughs> you know, I mean, I get it. There's possibly situations for that or whatever, but like having it as like a status symbol or a fashion accessory or what, what it seems to be now, I do not get it at all pink or otherwise yeah but i mean i guess just the fact that stuff needs to be pink to be sold to women right like it's gendered just by painting it a certain color yeah like is a man gonna buy that why did they make it pink in the first place it's like who thought of that 
in the first place. It's so deep. I don't know how that relates to Handmaid's Tale, but... Well, I mean, it, it does. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it's, that... Okay, no, I got it. The Handmaid's Tale is not pink, you know? Ah. It's very, you know, it's multicolored and has depth and it's complex. It's not a gun being marketed to women by painting it pink. It's like a real thing. It's not, it's not marketed to women. It's just about women. Exactly. You know, it's, it's uh, well, it's about people, but, you know, I guess the main characters are women. But yeah, I, I totally get where you're going with that, 100%. Does it scare you that society may head that direction or do you not, you just really don't see that happening? The empinkinization of society? No, the, 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 <laughs> well, let's, 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 not hope. actually, I, you know, things could be pink as far as I'm concerned. I own pink shirts it's and true, pink yeah. socks, you know what I mean? But I'm not using them to gender myself either. It's like the gender reveal parties or whatever. Okay. Oh, yeah. One, one thing I had thought before we did this episode that I really wanted to point out, and we never did it, I didn't mention it on the episode either, is that when you have these discussions about women in science fiction versus men in science fiction or whatever, it kind of like tends to portray gender as the binary and uh, kind of gloss over non-binary people. And I just want to point out that I, I, I recognize non-binary people 100%. You know what I mean? I, I feel like everybody's got body autonomy and they should, as we've said, those details don't necessarily matter to the work you're creating. And everybody of any sort of identity can produce great work, is capable of producing great work. And I think that's been proven over and over and over and over again to the point where I feel like I'm beating a dead horse by even saying it once. <laughs> well, it's but it's also, it's like, are people ready for it to be Star Trek? You know, well, clearly they're not. I mean, that's why there are the Proud Boys. That's why the the backlash against quote unquote liberal culture. Right. You know what thinking people, I think, just see as progress, people having better understanding and better empathy towards other people. Mm -hmm. But there, there is there's a backlash to it. And the backlash seems to have created this whole culture of like their whole identity being tied to fighting against progress. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to make a statement yeah. to that but yeah. <laughs> there's absolutely still misogynistic work being published out there and not because it's supposed to be that way it just is because that's how that author views the world and there's totally like racist works that get published and mm -hmm, kind of mm -hmm. irresponsible publishing but you know if you want to find it you can find it right nick yes you you're you have a daughter uh-huh as a father, does any of this stuff frighten you or do you think we're ahead of that? You know, I think the change, I think there's been for me, my awareness, I think all these things have always existed. Right. And for some reason I was of this delusion that things had, had started to really change. And I think that the last couple of years have really illustrated for me that our society, but whether it's with police brutality against minorities or, you know, whatever it is, or, or misogyny, in a way, it's been a very positive thing because I think it's, it's brought to light for all of us that this, the things have not changed at all, you know, and, and we've got a lot of work to do. At least underneath, it seems like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've got a lot of work to do to start rooting these things out. And I, I, uh, I don't know. It's tough, man. I remember, um, I mean, obviously this is an important day for pretty much everyone, but I remember reading my Facebook and Twitter feeds on Me Too Day and just as the day went on, my understanding of sexism completely changing over the course of a single day by seeing tons of women that I knew and know telling stories about all the different things that had happened to them and 
how I had just completely overlooked it or just assumed it wasn't happening. And, um, you know, I, obviously dropping the hashtag me too in this might seem like I'm pandering and I, you know, I'm trying my best to not pander. I just, as an individual, I just remember it being such a shift in my understanding of the subject matter and how women are being treated kind of behind the scenes. You know what I mean? Like, sure. You know, it seems like our society has made a lot of effort to uh, put on a glossy veneer, but then underneath there's really is a lot of fucked up stuff happening still. I mean, there's still female and, you know, non-binary trans authors that do like degenderize their name, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like, you know, use initials instead of putting their actual name or use a pen name that's, you know, I mean, J.K. Rowling used a initials, you know, probably the most famous female writer in the world. You know, I'm not, this is not an advocacy for writing or her as a person at all. What but, about, I didn't know P.D. James was a woman. P.D. James. And, you know, what's really, really funny about that is that I didn't learn that until after I read Children of Men, the book. Yeah. <laughs> like I, had, I had seen the movie, loved it, bought the book, no author photograph on the book, read it and then googled pd james afterwards and was like oh yeah that's crazy and you know you know for me i mean there are like there i love different different styles of writing like i'm a i love writing i'm just such a fan of it and there are some writers that are have a very masculine like point of view that i really like and some that are very that have a, a more I don't. I don't know if a woman, if a man, could have written *Handmaid's Tale*, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And then another one of my favorite writers. Um, he passed away a few years ago. Was Tom Jones, and he wrote. He was a short story writer, and he uh, he wrote a, a a bunch of books of short stories. One was *The Pugilist at Rest*, mm-hmm. and a lot of it was like his time in Vietnam and as a Marine and the head trauma he got from boxing and all that. It was very like kind of Hemingwayish. And, uh, and so, uh, I don't necessarily know if I really want, I like the idea that someone can write from a perspective and I can learn from that. And I know that I'm learning from that. I dig that, you know, like I said, I love Margaret Atwood and what she brings to the table and she doesn't, it doesn't seem like she really tries to hide that, you know? Well, it's like uncompromising. I think, I think writers have to be uncompromising. You know, yeah, they got to tell their truth the best they can. Well, I mean, if we want to talk about hashtags, there's I know there's in especially science fiction literary world, there's hashtag own voices where, you know, on agents and publishers are really looking for those authentic stories that are told from an authentic perspective. Um, And is that like, but it's like, it's also like, what does that mean? The biggest problem I see is that. Not that I think any I, I don't think any perspective should be silenced at all, except for, you know, it's the um the paradox of tolerance. So the paradox of tolerance basically says that a fully tolerant society still must be intolerant of the intolerant, if that makes sense. That is to say, you can't have a tolerant society if you're allowing neo-Nazis to walk around demanding, you know, death to Jews. And of course that's a paradox because you have to take some views off the table in order to create a tolerant society Uh, and it's a tough question but you know all the non-hateful i guess is what i should say perspectives deserve time in the spotlight all of them 
And, you know, I think the big problem is, is that when the spotlight has been hogged for a really long time by a certain perspective, uh, a certain perspective mm-hmm. has been like the the one people wanted to hear, or at least the one they were fed. And then there's a lot of backlash now to people saying, oh, well, let's introduce other perspectives. You know, let's have a story from this perspective and this perspective and this perspective. And I think that's where a lot of the backlash is forming is that they feel like it's woke to tell a black woman's story or to tell, you know, a Native American story or a Native Canadian story instead of just realizing that one perspective isn't enough. Uh, something that you're sort of illustrating is that it, it's not just the writers that need to come to a certain point. It's also the reader, like the readership. I can say from my own perspective, I have been more conscious about how women are represented in what I read, mm. you know, regardless of who it's written by. And that's not something that I did when I was like a teenager, really. I didn't really read stuff that way. And that's only something I've been doing recently. And I actually get very angry when women are portrayed under this like male gaze, like they only get brought in, like there's tons of characters, but there's only a female speaking character on page, you know, 150. And then somehow they're a love interest, you know, it's like a trope, you know, it's like, I think we have to, like readers have to be ready to read in a different way. Do you think there's anything that we can do as a society uh, yes, go on. I, to, I have the answer to this question. <laughs> oh, oh, excellent. Do you, do you think there's anything we could do as a society to move the readers and, and the writers in that direction? No, I don't yeah. have the answer. I don't know. I mean, there's lots of stuff that we could do, but there's so many factors. Like, that's such a complex path. Well, let's let's make this into a five-hour long. <laughs> Two-part, yeah. Okay, my... Last thing I'd want to ask you is, do you have any advice for aspiring female artists? I will give this advice to female and non-binary and trans artists and, and male artists. I'll give this advice to all artists to just write what you want and like have fun. And that's the point. Unless it's your job and you're like, oh God, I have to do this. But you should still be gaining pleasure from creating art in some way even though it might torture you. (laughs) And okay, so that's the first thing. Just always write, always write. And don't self-edit too much. Don't write for what you think people want to read. Just write what hashtag own voices. Write what you know and what you can imagine that's science fiction. And then the other thing is to get an incredibly thick skin because as a writer, you have to be, or as any kind of artist, you just get rejected all the time. And so to just not be super sensitive about that. Don't take it personally. Nick, do you have anything else? No, this has been awesome, man. Okay, awesome. I'll be on your podcast any day. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, Natalia. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, we'll definitely try to have you back, you know, talk about all sorts of stuff. In that case, uh, Natalia, thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, we had to reschedule for being so flexible about all this stuff and for giving us your point of view. We totally appreciate it. We're super happy to have you here. Awesome. Thank you. I'm I'm really uh, honored to have been part of this. Thank you so much for coming on, Natalia. And whoever's editing this, make me sound smart.
<laughs> Andrew somehow makes all of us sound smart. So uh, he's, he's, he's great at that. And for real though, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a hassle. I'd love to have you back again. Obviously, I, I feel like I'm speaking for tooth on this one as well. <laughs> well, anytime, anytime. It's now that I got this technology side is is down. It's it's super easy, actually. Tooth, thank you as well for setting us all up and everything. All right, man. We'll talk again real soon. All right. Late. Late. Take care. Bye. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker. And our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 